even as people reject British history, they're being incredibly British. And isn't it the ultimately the most British thing is to be self-deprecating and say, well, we're terrible. The only, the only problem with that is you end up an orphan. If you say my family is rotten, you wouldn't believe what my family did about like 200 years ago, what nothing to do with my family. Well, that's all very well, but you wind up an orphan. And ultimately, as I found, when you buy a dog, you need someone to walk the dog for you. And if you've written off the rest of the family, uh, you've got no one to do it. So no wonder we're feeling so lonely uh, when, we've, uh, when we isolate ourselves, not only from people alive now, but people from the past. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a historian, leader, writer for The Telegraph and the author of Whatever Happened to Tradition, Tim Stanley. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello. It's great to have you on. That was a very short hello from you. <laughs> uh, fant- well, welcome on the show. I'm thrilled. This is the podcast. Is it? When, when, my first, when my last book came out about seven years ago, if you didn't get on the BBC or Channel 4, your book basically didn't happen. And it's so fascinating that there are now all these different podcasts that you can go on and your, your book can reach different people and new audiences. And this is one of my favourites. Mm. Well, before we get into talking about your book, which we both really, really enjoyed, uh, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, how are you where you are, what has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here rather than on the BBC? I'm a Cancerian. Which <laughs> <laughs> think it's a good place to start. That tells you everything you need to know about me. Um, I was born in Kent. Uh, I had a father and a mother, no brothers and sisters. It's quite a small family. Uh, I went to a grammar school. I then went to Cambridge, where I studied history. I fell in love with America and ended up trying to spend as much time over there as possible. Uh, I studied wrote about, taught a bit of American history, Sussex University, Royal Holloway. But I got sick of the fact that I could literally name all the people who'd read my books. <laughs> because that's the fate of an academic book. Hardly mm. anyone reads them. Mm. Uh, so I decided to get into journalism. And over about a year or two, I just constantly badgered different newspapers. Mm. Uh, I worked my way up from the bottom. I really did. I had no contacts. And eventually I convinced the Daily Telegraph to use me as a sort of a... Uh, uh, a sort of an assistant comment type person in America. And somehow I managed to inveigle my way into the newspaper and I ended up working as a leader writer. So from history to journalism, that's basically the trajectory of my career. And you talk about popularizing uh, your work, getting it out in front of more than just a handful of academics. I think your current latest book about tradition is so poignant at this moment in time. And I, we've been thinking about this on the show quite a bit, and we've spoken to different people about it. And it kind of struck me a few weeks ago, we were interviewing Posey Parker, who used to be a gender critical feminist. Right. And one of the sort of key moments of that interview was her saying, bring back shame. Uh, right. Uh, when talking about stuff. Before that, I remember we've interviewed a Christian Catholic, uh, Christian Catholic, a Catholic uh, in America called Mary Eberstad, who wrote a book about how uh, the sexual revolution created identity politics. Yes. Uh, we interviewed a lady called Alex Kashuta who talked about how, look, she said, I don't have an ideology. I just know that the closer my lifestyle is to my grandmother's, you mm-hmm. know, pickling cucumbers for winter and all of that, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> living in a small town in Romania, the better I feel as a woman. And we found that actually those interviews have been most popular with young women. Interesting. And your colleague Madeline Grant of The Telegraph wrote a piece about how She's one of a number of millennials who don't believe in God who now go to church. Yeah. And I think all of this, at least in my opinion, is part of a 
a feeling among particularly young people, but I think all of us really, that we've been sold some kind of lie. Uh, and I think if I was to summarize that lie, I would say that it's the idea that, you know, the faster we throw in the bin 50,000 years of cultural development, the better, freer, more exciting and thrilling and wonderful our lives are going to be. And I think a lot of people are starting to find that that isn't the case for them. Mm-hmm. Do you, is, is, do, do you have something to say on that? Because I feel like you ought to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like that's the book. Uh, so, uh, yes, I agree with you. You use the word freedom. I mean, that, mm. That's absolutely critical. Uh, we are nowadays taught that that is the highest value. Uh, and we are encouraged to think that we can be the authors of our own story. That, by the way, is a tradition. It's a Western tradition. It's a very Western way of thinking. So ironically, by pursuing freedom and tearing up tradition, we're actually being very traditionally Western. On the other hand, it's, it's first of all a myth. It's nonsense. You don't write yourself. No one can. Even when you kick against where you came from, you're recognizing where you came from. And decisions we made on your behalf about the way you are brought up that are almost invisible. So again, that point about it being a Western tradition, one's pursuit of oneself is the product of a certain upbringing. It's the way you're raised is to, to aspire to certain things. So first of all, you, you can't escape the past. But secondly, the idea that those thousands of years, there isn't something in there that's not valuable, that, we, that because, precisely because it's been thrashed out over that, that period of time, uh, they haven't whittled down certain basic problems and found certain solutions and coping mechanisms. The idea that you'd want to junk that social knowledge, I think, is absolutely mad, let alone the idea that you could come up with something better just off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think what you're describing there, people looking backwards, is part of that, part of that process. What I would want to stress, however, is, I mean, you started with the word shame. And sometimes when we talk about tradition, uh, it, it, is, it is talked about in terms of um, punishments, negativity, some things we've all become a bit too decadent and we need to be mm. self-disciplined. Mm-hmm. There's a very positive dimension to tradition as well. I mean, the other, the other thing you described there was people trying to be uh, more like their grandparents. Well, that's more of a positive thing, making your own stuff, walking rather than taking the car, uh, not using plastic bags, all this sort of getting life that's simpler and more traditional in its style. Um, and that's really much more what the book's about. Uh, this, is, this is not a handbag over the head of Western man. I'm not saying, you, you dirty little thing. Uh, you must go back to the 1950s. On the contrary, uh, the further you, go, you look back, you might actually find some points of liberation and colour, which are, are really rather exciting um, and um, upbeat. And it's a really, really interesting point because it just feels that we tend to be progressing not only fast, but at warp speed now. Is yes. that me? Yes, you're getting old. <laughs> yes. No, 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 no. This is, this is a very important point um, that, that I, I sort of concluded in the course of writing this, that I've noticed that many people in my generation... Mm are nostalgic not just for their own use, but use that came before them. That things have moved so fast, even in their own lifetime, that actually their points of reference for how they would like to live are not when they were a kid, but their father or their grandparents. Uh, so uh, if you turn on the telly, uh, I, I'm struck by how it's all uh, call the midwife, Downton Abbey. It's 1950s or 1920s or 1930s. There are very few rosy shows about the 1990s. No one can be bothered to go back to that particular period. So my youth isn't really represented there at all. If you think about when we went through the pandemic, what were the, uh, what were the historical parallels we reached for? It was the war. 
bit bizarre because there have been actual pandemics you could reach for as much better uh, allegories for uh, analogies for how to behave. But that looms so large as a moral story that for many of us, we, we reach back to that. And I agree. I think it comes down to the pace of change has been so great within a lifetime uh, that actually for the, the past offers a sense of the solid because it's unchanging. So people reach back to something that came even before because it seems a little more solid. And it's not just even been in the last few years, but even when you, if you take during the pandemic, it seemed that the world speeded up even more. (laughs) The moment George (laughs) Floyd was murdered, it just seemed to be that we just shifted. Everything just shifted again. Yes. In a way that was very, very confusing for a lot of people when people were almost had to question themselves and think to themselves, am I now racist? I don't think I'm racist, but am I now racist? Yes, yes. And it's... It's not just that circumstances change, but also it feels like morality changes and language changes, which is very unusual for that to happen again within not just a lifetime, but a space of a couple of years. So to take the lockdown, for example, um, I thought that a recognised British value pre-lockdown was mind your own business. Mm. <laughs> that, that's, what I, that's what I thought we were all about in this country. And I like So did that. I. That's yeah. why I came here. <laughs> <laughs> but then, I, then I, I discovered almost overnight but it wasn't just that that, uh, that that value was contestable or problematic, um, but actually that the opposite was true. And it was a British value to keep an eye out on people. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it and I, 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 these things are not written in stone. I, I appreciate that values change dramatically over time. I just think it's a little unusual for them to change so fast, so dramatically. And as I say, for the language to shift with it so that one is no longer an expectant mother in the course of your lifetime, you can suddenly wake up and discover that you're in fact a pregnant person. (laughs) Um, And that these changes in language affect meaning and they affect how people feel and assess themselves. So it actually feels increasingly as though uh, old definitions of what it meant to be human are built on shifting sands. So no, no wonder people are looking back uh, looking back to points in the past, which, as I say, because it's happened and it's not, it's therefore it's unchangeable, it's immutable. People look back and think, well, I prefer that when I understood what a woman or what a lady was mm. to this, this period of extraordinary rapid change. So are you saying that we're sort of like, we've, we feel like we're holding onto a train from which we're about to fall out, fall out and we just crave the time when it wasn't going quite so fast where we felt a little bit more secure? Yes. And that's a myth. Uh, it, there has always been change. Right. Um, and uh, one of the things that really struck me when researching this book, because I, I didn't really know a lot about the 19th century, so I ended up having to do an insane amount of crammed reading about the 19th century. I was struck by how many complaints made uh, in the 19th century could be made now. And they were related to industrialization, the rise of the train, newspapers, all these sorts of things. The 19th century, people were, there was a brilliant sci- uh, psychiatrist, uh, a liberal Zionist called Max Simon Nordau who wrote a brilliant book called Degeneration, I think, uh, in which he describes the condition of his patients. Um, And he concludes that the world has gone mad on the basis of the people who he's treating. And he actually more or less predicts what would become the Second World War in about 30 or 40 years' time. He's he's remarkably prophetic. And it is the overloading of information. It's the pace of change. And that's already there in the 19th century. But to answer the question about uh, holding on to something, yes, that, that is what the feeling is. Um, And I think that's partly where Brexit and Trump come in. I think that's part of what we've been through in the last four or five years. The the language of uh, take back control. I think it's it's not just, it was was misinterpreted as simply about restoring parliament or, or controlling borders. I think it's even bigger than that. I think it's actually the individual 
wishes to be able to actually say to, histo- to say to history, stop there, I want to take stock, I want to understand my relationship mm-hmm. with you, and I want to regain, regain a sense of uh, investment and, and a stake in my own life. And is it the internet that's done this, or is there more to it than that, Tim? I think the internet has accelerated it. As I I say, it's really a two or three hundred year process, but definitely it's become much faster with the communications revolution. There's no denying that. Um, But I also think it is the natural terminus of of the Western tradition. As as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we we have it hardwired into our DNA to question things constantly and analyze things and scrutinize them. Um, And the internet has helped to accelerate that process. But it's also the atomization of society, isn't it? This this progress that we seem to be on. And we seem to devalue community and promote identity. And that, to me, just seems a, a way to, to the madhouse, isn't it? Yes and no, because I, I, I'm sympathetic towards identity politics to the extent that I think it is a symptom as much as a cause of everything we've described. Mm-hmm. It's understandable that the atomized individual looking for uh, an identity might reach out for a group and say, okay, that makes sense of my life. And if you look at Black Lives Matter, for instance, like when Black Lives Matter says we need to deconstruct the nuclear family, you might just read that and say, well, they just hate families. That's not quite true. They actually talk about going back to older forms of family. They see the nuclear family as as a white imposition, a modern invention, etc. But they're not anti-family or community by any means. It's just one senses that they, they feel no investment in the current social structures, so they are individuals looking for something else. So I, so I see that as a symptom. But undeniably, yes, it, it does also ironically help to perpetuate this problem of uh, us becoming more and more like individuals. And of course, that's not just a... I mean, sometimes when people talk about atomization, it's a little bit theoretical. But we all know in our everyday lives that it's a, it's a, it is a lived reality. Uh, because, because uh, for instance, I, I have, a, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, I have a very small family. Uh, I live alone. Uh, I'm, I'm a classic example of an atomized individual in the 21st century. Uh, we don't live the way that we used to, which is not just as part of large families, but also, crucially, large kinship networks, yes. where, you have, where if something goes wrong, you don't just have uh, to fall back on your wife or your mum and dad. You might have extended relationships of aunts and uncles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the actual pattern of our lives has changed. Mm. <laughs> it's a very, very good point. When I was reading your book, I kept thinking about religion because when I was younger, uh, you know, reading Dawkins, A God Delusion, you just think to yourself, where do we need religion? We have science now. Yes. We have logics. We have facts. Yes. And then we've taken religion out and you're looking around going, maybe we did need it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those facts won't uh, comfort you when someone dies. They just don't. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the problem with them. The reli- I mean, you mentioned uh, someone going to my friend Maddie Grant, uh, mm. going to church without believing in God. Um, see, that's very interesting. It raises the question why. If you don't believe in God, it, it could seem a bit mad because the whole point of, of the church is to worship God. And if you don't. But, but is that true, though, Tim? Because the, the, the shift from the pagan religions or the, or the sort of multi, um, whatever they're called, uh, poly, polytheistic religions, mm. right? The Romans, the Greeks, etc. Ordinary people weren't allowed in the temple. Right. And the shift from that to Christianity included making the church the house of God. Uh-huh. I don't think Madeline, I don't know, I haven't spoken to her about this specific issue, but I think young people who go to church without necessarily believing in God yeah. do so for the community element of it rather than 
the, yeah. rather than the belief in God, and maybe just a sort of meditative practice as well, a place where yes. you no longer, for one time in your life, are obsessed with yourself. Yes, yeah. And there is something beyond you, which I think a lot of people crave for now. I, I'd agree with that, except that, and uh, Maddie's a very good friend. I don't want to talk about her without We're just being talking here. about another person who's not here for no <laughs> yeah, reason but, but, ulti- but ultimately, if you wanted to do that, you could, for instance, join a political party. I, I don't think it's just the community. Yeah. Uh, I, and I would say, first of all, what is it that draws the community? It is the belief. So everyone else around you probably believes in God, even if you don't. They are there for a reason. And second of all, uh, once you are there, what is, what is it you're hit with? Well, it's not just the community, is it? It's either the preaching or it's the experience of transcendence, depending upon the kind of church that you go to. What I would say is to, because I, I am religious, but I, I, I made a point when writing the book not to make it all about religion. I saved religion until the very end, um, partly because I've learned from doing things like Thought for the Day, that this moment, moment you try to inject religion into the conversation, you lose someone. So it's better to uh, introduce it very subtly. Um, but also because I, I wanted to make the point that traditions serve human needs. Some are indeed just invented and imposed, and that can be horrible, and fundamentalism is an example of that. But in most cases, they've actually evolved over time to meet people's very basic needs. And even if you don't feel in your heart belief in God, I think you can see the psychological benefit and what it's speaking to. And there are certain moments in people's lives, typically when they give birth, when they get married, when they die, or when a a loved one dies, when they instinctively reach for the church. And it's partly because the church has developed a language that we do not have. At those moments, these experiences are so profound that there's almost no everyday language to describe them. How do you feel when your husband or wife has died? The church lends you the language. And even if you don't believe in reincarnation or going to heaven or whatever, it almost doesn't matter. You're allowing someone with thousands of years of experience to speak on your half and provide comfort. And, that, and so, so you don't, no, you don't have to believe. But I think that the belief can come because you realise that what's, what's generating this tradition, what sustains it, is the belief. And over time, I think that can come. It's a community as well. It's the way it binds you together. I was raised Catholic. We always used to go to Sunday Mass, five o'clock, and you used to sit down, you used to see the same faces. Now, even if you didn't know them, if you, in, in any great depth, there's a comfort to seeing the same people again. It yes. anchors you in community. Yeah, and, and also it gives you something to do on a Sunday morning. <laughs> don't Again, don't knock that. The lack of structure in the week. Um, I, I have a slightly odd week because uh, I work at weekends and sometimes it's just not possible to, to do my usual mass on a Sunday. And on those days, I just feel lost. I, I, I've lost that sense of structure to the week. Um, really, that, that's what religion is about. It, it marks the year. It gives structure to your year. The liturgical year is wonderful. It explains to you what you're going through. Things don't just happen to you. You, you actually have a sort of dialogue with the universe. You, you have a sense of place within it. Mm. So, Tim, uh, now that we've lost all the people who are uncomfortable with talking about religion, <laughs> uh, well, Francis and I are both non-believers, but... Um, it's, it's a very interesting conversation. And I keep coming back in my mind to the point you made at the very beginning, which is it is a core tenant of Western civilization to question and to seek freedom. Yes. Is that an inevitably self-destructive force then? Because I, I suspect one of the reasons that we believe in God less than we used to, but that people like Francis and I exist even, is that 
we want to be free of the external impositions on us, of the authority saying, don't do this, and if you do that, then you're, you're bad and wrong and you will be punished and, and you will be looked badly upon by your community. Are we careering off the deep end here with this endless pursuit of freedom Are we, or, or is there going to be some kind of natural built the mechanism that says to us, okay, we've got the freedom now, let's just make sure that we don't lose it by doing something else? Yeah, I, I think an important caveat to my argument is that uh, even within those sort of traditions that I'm saying look back to, you'll still find that, that sort of DNA strand of the search for freedom and, and moral autonomy. So you find it within Christianity as well, which is why it is at once a very conservative religion, a religion of churches. It's also a religion of reformations and of constant change. And every generation or so, the church will settle and it like it's, it's, it's sort of, it's found its place in the world. And someone will come along and say, no, it's not pure enough. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there's also this feeling within Christianity that uh, faith must be chosen. So, so there, there are lots of ways in which even those things that I would like us to look back to and revive, I recognise that, that that desire for freedom is within them. Uh, but yes, I do think it is self-destructive, and I, I think it's a real problem. Um, and what, I, what I'm arguing in the book is that uh, I'd like people to look a little bit beyond. I'd like people to look before the Enlightenment, because there was a medieval consensus which was very different, which saw freedom in a very different way. I'd like them to look beyond Europe a little bit, because uh, there is Russia, there is Japan, there are other countries which deal with the same problems we have and handle them in a very different way. And to just think beyond themselves and beyond the, the desire for liberation constantly. And to look for freedom in things which are settled. And that, that, that's a key point of the book that you really can't have liberty without order. Um, and there are certain forms of, uh, there, there are certain traditions like notions of authority, uh, which we just, we just recoil against nowadays. But the point is that these things defend liberty uh, because you, you, if there's chaos, ultimately you can't be free, and I and I I do fear that's where we're headed towards. I it? flinched a little bit when you said the <laughs> word order. I think we've all sort of we all now so not all a lot of us think about it as a sort of ordinal like yeah. that's right. that's yeah. the vibe of that word. Yes, um, and it, it's difficult. Oh, for... but, but but if I could just step in there, if you, if you take the lockdown for instance, I would say that a traditional society, I would hope, wouldn't have needed those draconian rules because the public would have been so public-spirited that they would have done the right thing without being told what to do. When you have a breakdown in moral order, it requires the state to step in to tell people what to do. So the less there is this sort of organic, instinctive understanding of, of a moral consensus, the more you actually fall back upon the state to instruct people to behave a certain way. That makes sense. Let me pick up on something you said earlier, because we're both fascinated by history. And you were talking about how in the medieval times, there was a consensus that was very different around the issue of freedom. Talk to us about the historical evolution of this very idea of indiv individual autonomy and freedom. How has that changed over time? Well, it's always there because, of course, the roots of the Enlightenment really come from humanism and the Renaissance. Mm. And that itself was looking back to Greek philosophy. So it's always there. But I, I think... a, a a key element of the medieval um, of, of the medieval attitude towards uh, the individual and towards life was this idea of everything being interconnected. That you you are defined by your relationship, not just by yourself and how you feel, but your relationship to other people. Um, so whereas now we begin from the point of view of uh, who am I, how do I feel, and we're intensely psychological. Uh, instead, an, an older, more traditional approach towards life is to define oneself in relationship to other people. And you, you find this in, in more traditional societies as well. So you might say not just uh, I am a 
woman, but I am a mother, uh, I am a wife. Um, or indeed, you may say I'm a nurse as well. So I think that's, that's, why, that's one way in which it's slightly different. Um, but if you live in a God-ordered universe, you start from a different set of first principles to the ones we have now, which again are, are very much about negotiation with morality. Whereas if you just say, look, things are as they are, because this is the, this is the understanding as we, this is the world as we understand it, as we have been told it, and as God has ordered it, that doesn't mean there is no freedom. It just means that um, it just means that your the way the way you act starts from different a different set of first principles. Isn't the problem with our society is that we don't worship God; we just worship ourselves now, and you see that with social media, with Instagram. You know, it's entire focus on the self. So, isn't part of the problem with talking about traditionalism is that we live in a society that incentivizes us to be selfish and narcissistic. Because we see the people who are selfish and narcissistic, they're the ones who get to the top. They're the celebrities. They're the bankers. They're the wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, in the medieval period, people were making precisely that complaint. So, so I, <laughs> that's I, I, the age group you belong to, <laughs> yeah, mate. 500 years old. I mean, those characters, you could read the Canterbury Tales, and mm. you, you'd see those representations there. So that, that is, a, that, that is a, a human ongoing thing. I mean, it, it's, it's, some of the scriptures are about complaining about those uh, attitudes as well. So I, I'd say it's eternal, but I, I do agree. Uh, I think we've become over-psychological and everything is over-internalised. Um, is it, see, I, I'm reluctant to, to, to say it's because we don't believe in God, partly because, again, I will lose lots of people who I'd like to see buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think it, you, you can say God is a useful, is useful in the sense that it draws our attention away from the self and to something else. Another way of thinking about it is, what are your points of reference for aspiration? This is one thing that really troubles me. I think we're one of the first societies in history that has very little moral aspiration, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't have a strong sense of this is the kind of person you should be. It's constantly being negotiated and it's constantly up for debate. Um, but there, there, is no, there, is no, there is less and less of a sense of ideal. And that's part of what religion does, is it provides you with ideal human beings and ideal types, crucially with moral content. So they're not just ideal because they are beautiful or strong or anything like that, but because they are good people. Uh, so in Christianity, saints are very often poor, uh, they're mad, uh, they're very difficult people, uh, but they're extraordinary people who put their own life on the line for other people. That, that should be who your ideal is. In this society, insofar as we have ideals, um, it's, it's either for the rich, people who made it, and that's who you want to aspire to, or it's for a set of things which I would describe as not being really moral. I mean, this is Frank Ferreira's point, is that we, we obsess about, we, we've got hooked on words that have no moral content. So, our, so one of the ideals of our society is to be diverse. That's just a descriptor. Just to say that this room, this room is diverse doesn't mean any of us are moral people in it. We're, hey, we've got 10 out of 10 because we're a diverse group of people. <laughs> so what? That doesn't say anything about us and our moral character. Another is inclusion. Well, hey, you could include uh, a murderer in your party if you wanted to. Again, no moral content. So w w religion doesn't, it, religion offers ideals, but crucially, they, they are usually ideals with a moral content. Tim, so as a sort of, you're, you're talking about moral history in a way here, and you bring up those, 
the evolution of language. That's something I've studied very carefully myself as a former translator, comedian. I obsess about words all mm. the time. And I've, I've, there's a chapter in my book about the evolution of language. But you mentioned diversity. You mentioned inclusion. Why have these particular, I mean, non-ideals, ideals, right? Uh, th- things that, as you say, don't have that moral content, but nonetheless we hold up as being ideal, particularly here in Britain. Why are we so keen to focus on that? At the moment, um, I think partly because it's easy. I mean, and the, the irony is, is it's sold to us as, as a, a struggle to get those things, but actually they're quite easy to achieve. Um, and it's partly because we live in a capitalist order, uh, and it's something that capitalism can do without having to make an enormous sacrifice. It's something businesses can do. Uh, businesses can go diverse, and they can sell diversity, and they can sell themselves as diverse, and they can gain a huge custom base like HSBC. Uh, by by pushing uh, certain woke things and selling themselves to us, so that we're not actually giving their money away, are they? No. I mean, <laughs> well, they're laundering the drug dealers' money at the same time. You've got a portrait of, of Stalin on the wall, and this is by no means to endorse Marxism, but <laughs> at least that aimed for a genuine redistribution of wealth and power. One of the frustrating things about the, this new moral paradigm is it doesn't actually do that. It doesn't actually level anything or make anyone more equal or, or, um, or make society genuinely fairer. Uh, so I, I think that's one reason is because it's, it's an easy form of, of moral progress. It's easy to track and it doesn't cost very much money. Hold on, Jim, you say it doesn't make, make it fairer. What about minorities that have been historically discriminated against and now their lives are a lot easier and they're being That's given true. Up? That, that's unfair. No, I, 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 that, that's unfair of me to say that. Yeah, no, you're, you're quite right. No, that, that, that's, that's a fair point. But I, I suppose being old-fashioned and having, in my youth, been a socialist myself, I just always thought that I, I, I measure fairness in, in the genuine redistribution of wealth and power, and I, and I don't actually see that happening. And, and there, there must be a reason why BAE Systems is pro-diversity. <laughs> <laughs> the company, for those of you who don't know, makes uh, British armaments. Yeah, um, yeah. and, and they, spo- they sponsored a Pride Festival, I think, uh, in the Isle of Wight somewhere. And I just thought that's extraordinary, an equal yeah. opportunity weapons dealer. Mm. Yeah. That is morality turned upside down. And it's not a morality that would have been recognized 100 years ago when the left, pacifistic and genuinely into redistribution and into getting rid of all arms, would have thought associations with that kind of group to be absolutely abhorrent. But that's so interesting because a lot of these companies are like that. Manchester City, again, supporting BLM, their manager came out and spoke about the evils of slavery. You go... But you're owned by Qataris. <laughs> right. You know, yes. you just got... Yes. It, 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 it's so paper thin. Yes. I, I would understand if they hid it, but they yes. don't even bother hiding it. No. They just put a pride flag or BLM and then they go, well, that's it. Yeah. That's all we need to do. And it won't be happening in the country that's the sponsor, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm looking forward to Harry Kane wearing a... Uh, a pride, he had the rainbow uh, captain's armband. I'm sure he's not going to be wearing that in Qatar. <laughs> no. And I, look, a lot of people believe it. And a lot of people genuinely want to help. And I, 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 I do feel a little bit bad about being sarcastic or, or doubting that. I, and some of what they want, that fairness, that, uh, that equality, these are good things. And I, I'm not against them. I just, as I say, that always be suspicious when a big business endorses an idea. Because ultimately, it's motivated by the bottom by by how much money it makes, um, and I, I just I suspect that they're doing this because it's it's an easy win. Tim, but come back to uh, I just want to finish up on this idea about 
these values, inclusion, diversity. Surely there's got to be something there because my experience when I talk to people in this country as an outsider, someone comes from Russia, is people here feel very guilty about the past. Right. That is the right. primary yes. response of many people about this country's history, Britain being one of the greatest countries in the history of the world, by the way, just to put that out there, right? Mm -hmm. So to me as an outsider, that that I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I know it's part of the British tradition that Orwell talked about that, you know, most intellectuals would rather be seen stealing from the poor box than standing for the national anthem. But nonetheless, I feel like these movements for inclusion and diversity in the way that they are now, again, I agree with you, equality and all, it's very good. They seem to me to be stemming in a very fundamental shift in our perception of our past, of our history, of our tradition. Do you yes. do you feel that's a factor there? Yeah, no, I think that's very really true. Uh, the, the past can be a, a place of learning, both for good and bad. Um, and, and they very often pick up on the bad, but sometimes you lose a sight of the, the good. And we go back to aspirational ideals. Uh, the, the good just, the, the past does throw some up. And the problem is if you just write off the past and you say basically everyone before this date was racist and sexist and uh, they, they were like sort of uh, ignorant uh, Neanderthals, mm. you, you lose a lot of, of good learning as well. I mean, look, I, I, I think Britain is the best country in the world because it's my country. If I were born, mm -hmm. if I were born again, I, might, I may well choose to be Norwegian. I, I get the impression that they have a much better life than we do. But it's, it's instinctive and natural to people to say this is the best because it's mine. In the same way that you'd say my mum cooks the best flan, right? She probably doesn't. I'm sure there are some Michelin-starred chefs who do it much, much better. But to you, it is the best. And that kind of uh, personal attachment to things is perfectly natural. Um, and I think it's rather artificial and strange, and I never psychologically got it, why people don't feel that. It seems, it seems normal to me. Um, and, and you're right, there, there is a... There is a war on the past. It is a very Christian idea. Again, I come back to, this is the fascinating, complex thing about tradition is, is much of what seems to be kicking against it is actually an endorsement of it. And in a lot of that language about slavery, I hear echoes of original sin. I'm a Catholic. And this idea that we did something a long time ago that was so bad that everything is stained by it ever since and we've got to make up for it and atone for it. Well, that's a form of original sin. Um, so... Even as people reject British history, they're being incredibly British. And isn't it the ultimately the most British thing is to be self-deprecating and say, oh, we're terrible. The only, the only problem with that is you end up an orphan. If you say my family is rotten, you wouldn't believe what my family did about like 200 years ago. What nothing to do with my family? Well, that's all very well, but you wind up an orphan. And ultimately, as I found, when you buy a dog, you need someone to walk the dog for you. And if you've written off the rest of the family, uh, you've got no one to do it. So no wonder we're feeling so lonely uh, when, we've, uh, when we isolate ourselves, not only from people alive now, but people from the past. It's a great point. One thing I would push back on with the original sin isn't part of the problem now with the way we look at things. Some people have original sin and some people don't. Right, yes, yes. But that, yeah, that's true. Um, I think there's a, this is going to get a bit, weird and niche, but I think a lot of woke is actually Calvinist. So I said Catholic, but that might be the wrong way to approach it. Uh, and in Calvinism, you have this idea that uh, some people are going to heaven and only God knows. And some people are going to hell and only God knows. And it's sort of, it, it's, it's a decision that's <laughs> taken. I've seen my Twitter feed, I'm it, it, It's something well. over which you, it's not that you have no control, but because God knows everything, he already knows. Mm. So how are, how are we to tell? 
who's heaven bound and who's hell bound because we want we want a church and we don't want to let the hell bound people into our church mm. so you you develop this theory of visible sainthood uh, that people have to act like they're going to heaven they don't know if they are or they're not but they've got to act like they are mm. and i see some of that mm. in woke as well i there, there's this um, there's this attempt to be a visible saint mm. by signing up to certain things using certain language to prove that you're i'm not going to hell so, I, yes, you're right. Some people are definitely not sinful, but it's more than just even that. It's people who might be sinful are desperately keen to prove that they're not. Um, and that's what I think we're in right now, is a, cult of, a Calvinist cult of visible sainthood. And what do you think the future is going to be? Do you think that it's... Because there are some people who think, look, this is here, this is here to stay. Yeah. We have to accept it. We have to work within these remits. There's some people who say, no... We need to take it on. We need to challenge it. We need to fight it. Yes. Where do we go from here? Well, I could sell 10 times more books by saying it's all over and we're doomed. Mm. Uh, but, <laughs> but again, my experience of history is that's not the case because at so many points in Western history, we have said, well, that's that then. We're mm. finished. And then we've bounced back. Uh, everything goes in cycles and everything moves in fashions. Um, and, and in fact, that come back to poor old Madeline, must bring her on the show to, to uh, explain herself. We, we, go back, we go back to Maddie and, and young people going to church, even though they don't believe in God. That's very interesting. Where, where is that being transmitted? If you, if you weren't necessarily raised that way, if you don't believe in that, why would you be drawn to this thing? And I see lots of young people doing that. Uh, the future is, yes, more tension and chaos and fuel cues and things like that. But the future is probably also Renaissance and Restoration, because it always has been. And I, I think these, uh, the good things that we've discussed are so powerful and attractive, I do think they win people back. Uh, it's just up to a, a new generation to make the case for them. And that's part of what the point of the book is. I'm making a case for something that in the past people didn't feel they had to make a case for, it's just taken for granted. But no, we need to start all over again. And there are lots of people doing that, like Jordan Peterson. I find Peterson's books fascinating because I read them and I think this is bloody obvious. Mm. He's just saying things that are blindingly obvious, like tidy your room. I don't do it, but he says things. Are but that there is a generation of people who don't know blindingly obvious things, and they need to be reinstructed in them. Well, you were talking about Jordan Peterson, and that is such a powerful point because if you if you were to say if an alien came down from the skies, you asked us before you came before we started the show. You said who's the biggest person you've had on? Have you had Jordan Peterson? And, yes. <laughs> and you go well, this Canadian professor who refused to bow down to some particular law that they introduced in Canada, and suddenly he's the biggest intellectual star in the world, or certainly the Western, the English speaking world. And I think the reason is is the crisis of meaning that people talk about. Yes. What? traditionally and historically have people used human beings used to give their lives meaning and how does that differ to us today um first of all the peterson literally wrote a book called maps of meaning of course and and read it the first time i read him i thought this is just young um uh, it's about archetypes uh, peterson is young at heart uh, <laughs> and and the point about archetypes is that you again have these aspirational ideals that you say to people this is what a man is like this is what a woman is like doesn't mean that's what we are actually like it just means that you give them templates to people and you 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 tell you 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 explain how to be a human being through stories uh, stories which uh, you can see you can place yourself into stories about danger hope uh, charity, things like that. And that's much of what religion does. It just it gives us, in Jesus Christ, the model of the perfect person to compare yourself to. As we mentioned earlier, freedom um, 
really all freedom, the individual personality should be to some extent relational um, so that you find meaning in your relationship uh, with other people and with structures. Um, so I, I, that, that, that's the, that, that I think is the answer is to find redemption in other people. How can I help them? How can I have a good relationship with them? Um, how do I fit within a society? What is my role? Um, and how do I serve? Rather than beginning from the point of view of how do I get on? How do I actually flourish as a member of this community and this society? Do you think we're going to see a resurgence of religion with, uh, or Christianity with young people, Generation Z or whatever they're called, going to church on a 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? We're not quite there yet. I mean, Benedict XVI talked about the future being a smaller um, but more faithful church. That we're, we're moving away from uh, the hangover of ethnic religion, cultural religion, where you went to church because it's what your parents did, except, well, people's parents have stopped going. So certain ideas are not being transmitted anymore. Uh, therefore, people will rediscover them in a whole new way. And I think that process will be very slow and it might be slight. Though, again, I come back to this as nothing unusual. Many people were complaining in the 19th century that Christianity become a very middle-class thing, that the working class had drifted away from the church. So, I, yes, I think the future could be that, but you've got to make it happen. It's certainly that in other societies. Um, and, and we mustn't be too Western-centric. Uh, religion's doing very well in other countries, in Latin America, in Africa, and the Middle East. No, it's true. And, and that is a problem with the West, I think, is that we have this navel-gazing attitude where we just look at ourselves and our culture and our societies without actually looking outwards. Yes. And we have a habit of thinking that what, how we feel is universal. Uh, it's, it's very frustrating. And again, it's a very Christian thing to do, this, this idea that, uh, that it's not just my God, it's the entire world's God. Um, and what and his laws don't just apply to me; they apply to the entire world. And the West has inherited that that sense of universalism, universality. And we very often tell ourselves that our attitudes towards freedom and our our definitions of what the good life is, everyone either shares them, which of course is nonsense because we know they don't. The Taliban don't. <laughs> or, or if you took away certain structures from people's lives, they would choose them. Um, and they might do. It's an experiment that we keep trying with nation building. But the, so thus far, it hasn't worked. Some people do like the way we live. Undoubtedly, they do. Um, but a lot of people we've discovered actually don't. You mentioned the Taliban, it, it, and it's interesting that you do, because some people have talked about the idea that you talk about things moving in cycles in history. Mm. And of course, you're right. Um, the idea that what will come in response to a lack of order is a craving for order yes. that goes too far in another direction. And yes. people start to seek order from people who bring it with all sorts of terrible other things that you know, free Western society actually warn. And I'm not talking about Islamic fundamentalism only. It could be lots, it could take shape in, in other forms. Are you concerned about that? Do you think that's a possibility? I am concerned about that. I mean, I'm, I'm keen to say in the book that, because people will come back to me and say, look, so you want traditional forms of religion. Okay, well, is ISIS and the Taliban not traditional? Well, I'm, I'm not going to run away from that. To, to a certain extent, they are. But I, I would argue they are quite untraditional in their manifestation of religion. Uh, for a start, they, they don't recognize evolution within tradition. Um, they want to turn the clock right back to a fantasy of what things were like in the 7th century. And in some ways, things weren't actually like that. I mean, a classic example is ISIS reintroduced slavery um, for, um, for Yazidis and uh, non-Muslims. Well, there was slavery in the 7th century, but the trend was actually towards manumission. Muhammad uh, preached clemency and things like that. So, so if anything, 
Islam was moving in a certain direction, they've actually countered that and gone back. They are fanatics and fundamentalists. They, they, they lack a nuance, uh, a, a nuanced understanding of what religion is uh, and the way that it develops. Nevertheless, you're right uh, that there, there is a great worry that if you don't provide answers, if intelligent people rooted in the past with compassion don't provide answers and direction, then something else will step in. And of course, in the 1930s, that was fascism and communism. And that's where it ends. Um, and that, that, that is alarming. And people, people were having this sort of conversation in the 1920s and 30s, by the way. Right. So, so you, you can't rule out fascism. And Europe has a history of doing it. Um, we, are, we, we are just as capable of being brutal and nasty as any other part of the world. And That's reassuring. That is very reassuring. <laughs> One thing I've really enjoyed about this interview is, I, I assume you're a conservative uh, in, in your politics. Would you? Would you not, push- not, not with a capital C. But, but, okay. But I would say that unlike small C conservatives, mm. there's, you're quite optimistic. Oh, I'm very optimistic, yes. And I find yeah. that quite yes. incongruous, I would say, as a world, because a lot of the time when I talk to conservatives, and I have conservative leanings as well, particularly small C conservative leanings, I think they're rooted in pessimism a lot of the time. Yes. They seem to be, well, you know, if only we could go back to, you know, when, the, when, when we respected marriage or when we respected tradition, yes. we wouldn't have all this shit. <laughs> right, bring back hanging. Right, right. right. But, you, but you, you see what I mean. Whereas right. you, yes. th- there's there's an optimism which yeah. I don't often see in a lot of people what I, who what have those say, leanings. What I would say to them is two things. One, if you want life to be a certain way, live it, and many of them do. But I just think it's, it's incumbent upon the individual. If you think marriage is important, right? Okay, go and find yourself a wife and have lots and lots of kids. Uh, it begins with you. Don't just berate society. It begins with you. The second thing I would say is that I think it's it's almost unchristian to be to despair. Indeed, it is. It is unchristian to despair because Christians at heart believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. Things are going to be okay. So if you go around saying, "Oh, it's all over and it's done," well, that's a very unchristian attitude. It's also quite an un-British attitude. Again, one of those uh, things I was raised to think British's, Britishness was, was uh, stiff upper lip. Um, uh, and there's a wonderful scene uh, in, which I always like to quote, in Carrying Up the Khyber, uh, when the palace is being stormed and someone says to Sir Sidney Rough Diamond, what shall we do? And Sir Sidney says, do? We're British. We'll do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I, I just think, and finally, and, and particularly Americans uh, who are apocalyptic, that's the most un-American attitude. America is all about positivity and being upbeat. So if you want to revive these traditions, live them. But also these traditions, one of the reasons why they keep going is because they have faith in the future and their ability and their and self-confidence in their ability to persevere and to flourish and to flower and to change and to grow. So I think it's very... I, 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 to me, it is actually going against the spirit of tradition to say it's all over and we're doomed. All right. I'm, we're not going to ask you any more questions because it's nice to end on a positive <laughs> note after the conversation we've just had. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. Other than to say, Tim, uh, brilliant book. Thanks so much for coming on. Whatever happened to tradition? And uh, we have one final question for you as always. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Anything other than politics. <laughs> that is my one big complaint about the modern world is this obsession with politics. And it is, an, it is an, the, the terminus of everything we've discussed, which is the rise of liberalism and the idea that everything in life can be debated and sorted out. And therefore, if you believe that, literally every single element of your life 
not just from economics, but to who should be the next James Bond, is discussed in political terms. And I would just like to go for a week in this country in which we don't talk about politics. That would be the most radical, radical proposition I can imagine. Amen, my friend. Amen. Uh, Tim Stanley, thank you so much. We're going to ask you a couple of quick questions for locals. But in the meantime, thanks so much for coming on. And thank you for watching and listening at home. We'll see you with another brilliant interview like this one very, very soon. Or you can catch a raw show at exactly the same time. 7 p.m. British Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. Or if you like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys.